Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. This is Open Mike Eagle recording live from the internet. Y'all know me, though. Y'all heard my voice for a long, long time. So this time I'm coming back at you, but I'm not coming alone. The Black Prince, could I be right? I brought the legendary Prince. World-famous disc jock, inventor of the skit in hip-hop, and damn, we won a Grammy with Chris Rock, yeah. On behalf of the super fans, yeah, cause I'm one, and the answers are for everybody. He got stories, so I asked for one. We having fun and laughs, cause he has a ton, yeah. And like that, a podcast begun, cause he answered, well, what had happened was. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Open Mike Eagle, and I'm here as every week with my esteemed. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, Distro Kid. Man, so many of my homies use Distro Kid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping a hundred percent of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least a hundred of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. Partner, the one and only Mr. Prince Paul. What? All right. <laughs> We're in for a live one this week, hey, folks. Hey, man. You know, I got to change it up every time, man. But as always, this is what had happened was where we discuss uh, a moment in Mr. Prince Paul's career and we try to get him to cry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've cried a few times on these episodes, but you, but you just cry on the inside though. Like we need a good, we need a good, um, Native American man <laughs> here to roll down the cheek. Nah, man, that's not hip hop. <laughs> try to take away my hip hop card. That's true. That's true. That would cost you half a Timberland if you, <laughs> you cry on camera. This week on our program, uh, we're going to discuss one of the projects that started it all. We're going to discuss De La Souls, Three Feet High and Rising. Jesus, Jesus, Reese's Pieces. We're yep. going there with it. We're going there. Ooh. We're going back to Ooh. the source. Oh, oh. 
okay, now I got to get the brain going backwards. That's right. This is a project that you helmed. Uh, you you were already in the industry as a part of Stesasonic. And uh, just as a quick aside, you started with Stesasonic when you were how old? Uh, I joined Stesasonic at the end of, I think, the 10th grade. So wow. that was probably like 16, 17. And how old were you when you went about starting this project with De La Soul? Let me see. De La Soul was probably, uh, let me see, 85, 86, 87. I was probably 18, 20. 20. Yeah, 19 to 20. So what is your life slash career like at this point? Um, I am the DJ for Stetsasonic. Um, some people knew who I was. I got a chance to travel a bit. I've made very little money in the music industry mm. <laughs> uh, at that point. Uh, I had uh, learned a lot through working with Setsasonic, through Daddy-O and, and Delight. Um, but I, you know, I wasn't accomplished by any means as far as as a musician. Uh, I was still learning, but I felt I had a lot more to offer at that point. What's something that you learned with Stead, like something that you were like, I want to bring this skill or this new perspective into a new project i think part of learning for me especially with sonic is not just what to do but what not to do mm. <laughs> you know what i'm saying and uh what to do i think uh was i guess the, knowing my way around the studio i went to school at that time um to college for audio engineering uh and business management which was somewhat helpful um, but there was nothing like being hands-on in the studio with Stetsasonic and observing and learning the equipment and, you know, pause, touching the knobs and everything else that uh, went along, you know, with that and just having the experience. Um, I think what I learned uh, on the opposite part of that is um, is to make everyone inclusive. And I mm. think that's a part of Stetsasonic that started out initially, but as time went on, it wasn't like that anymore. You know, we weren't working as a, as a group uh, as we once was. And I knew that whatever next project that I did or whoever I worked with, I wanted everyone to always feel involved. Coming out of a, a group that had achieved some measure of success, that toured everywhere with acts like, NWA, Public Enemy, you know, coming from a situation that was relatively successful, was there any nervousness in stepping outside of that to try to do something new? No, not at all. Because to me, I had nothing to lose. Hmm. You, you got to understand, like, my approach to music industry in general was never, I never planned on being in the music industry. You know what I'm saying? So my thing was I love DJing, always loved DJing. In my head at some point in, in time, I thought I was the best DJ in the world. And that's truly how I felt. And I was cool with that. Making records to me was like, oh, that's for Run DMC and the Fat Boys and everybody else. My thing was I was going to go to college, become a, uh, an audio engineer um, or roadie, set up the, the equipment on the road um, with a minor in business management. And if worse, you know, I could work at a music store or something, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I never really 
took everything that serious. So I think my approach has always been different. It's never, you know, it's never, uh, I never felt as though I needed to succeed, mm. you know, in the music industry because in all reality, if not worse came to worse, but I would uh, take the civil service test and become a postman. Word. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> it's, it's always been different for me, you know? Well, um, speaking of different, I mean, you, you talk about having the goal of wanting to go to college and have all these clearly defined ways that you could end up as an adult, different careers that you had in mind. Was that typical of people that were around you at the time? Was everybody looking at life that way in terms of these things that they felt like they could achieve? Uh, my immediate family, you know, it, it, as far as like Stead is concerned, it was, and being around them, they were always like, yo, we're going to make a hit, we're going to blow up, and we're going to do this and do that. And for me, I was always, I'm going to go to college. <laughs> you know, I'm the first person in my immediate family I know of that graduated college. Mm -hmm. You know, so I was just thinking of just getting an apartment and a car and, you know, stuff I've seen around <laughs> me daily. Making records was, to me, was just so out of the question of everything. Timeline-wise, when did you graduate college? I graduated, let me see, uh, graduated high school, 85, 86, 86 I think 88. So... As this album came out, you you managed to finish college. Yeah, I was That's I was amazing. in college. Yeah, yeah, I had to go an extra semester because I failed. Weirdly enough, marketing class. <laughs> <laughs> you know, message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, what did you graduate with? Just uh, out of curiosity. I don't want to talk about it. Let's just say I graduated and I have a degree. Oh, right. Okay. Must be, I'll leave it at that. Must have been basket weaving. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's glorified basket weaving. <laughs> yeah. So, um, 20 years old, in a successful group, you, you set out to kind of do your own uh, project. How did you go about finding the guys in De La Soul? I don't know if it was a thing of like finding them. It everything is I you know, everything that the universe brought me just kind of came uh came about. And I say it like this. I was working uh I was asked to produce a beat for a gentleman, uh MC named Gangster B. Mm -hmm. Now Gangster B lived in, in our neighborhood and our music teacher, uh at the junior high school of Amityville. This is Long Island. Long Island. Uh, Long Island, New York, um, was Mr. Everett Collins. And Everett Collins uh, played drums for the Isley Brothers. And he happened to be the music teacher at the high school. And he also started a record label. <clears throat> Excuse me. A record label. And I believe the first person he signed, or one of the first acts, was Gangsta B. Mm -hmm. Since I'm the known celebrity in the neighborhood now, because I made a record. I'm a right. set to Sonic, a hip-hop record. Mm -hmm. Paul, bring your drum machine in, program beat, you know, do this thing for Gangsta B. I came in with my drum machine. It was a sequential tom, and I still have it. And it, the cool thing about that drum machine, it played beats backwards, mm. which was very advanced for 1980s, mid-80s, right? So I'm programming this beat. They want this backwards beat, but it sounded too much like Paul Revere. And I come from an era where biting is a crime. Right. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so while I'm programming this beat, uh, Gangsta B's DJ was there. And his DJ was Mace, Maceo from De La Soul. Uh, and Maceo, who 
I've seen before in the neighborhood and who I've known his family as well uh, came to me and was like, I know what you're feeling. Like, we both agreed that this was not right. cool, right. right? And he's like, yo, I have this group called De La Soul. So they already had the name. He had the group. Yep. He had the group De La Soul. And, you know, you should check out some stuff we're doing. Maybe, you know, you'd be willing to work with us, you know, and... Cause I was like, cause I had all these ideas. They're like, nah, man, keep the backwards beat. I'm like, mm. <laughs> so that's how it started. And from that point, uh, Maceo brought the uh, rough of plug tuning. Mm. And when I heard it, I was like, oh my God, I've never heard anything like it before. But my ego and my experience said, but I can make this better. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It's dope, but I can make it. F- no. Let me think of back then. This is fresh, but I can make it fresher. <laughs> uh, can, can you remember anything about how that original sounded and what you felt like you could improve upon it and what became the final product? Um, man, it was just so raw and it was funky and I've never heard anything like it. I mean, just the the, the sample itself, mm-hmm. you know, zoom, 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 zoom. But to me, it was dope, but it dragged. Mm. I was like, oh, okay. How can we make this more interesting, make it, arrange it, and da-da-da? So I was like, okay. <clears throat> he left me the cassette, and what I did was I took the cassette. You know, back in the days, you take cassettes and dub them, right. have two cassette decks, and just add stuff to it and dub them. And after a while, you hear, because <laughs> you dubbed the same thing over and over and over, and you added stuff. <clears throat> so I added a beat. I added the Billy Joel part and a whole bunch of things just to make it kind of... You know, drive, yeah. yeah, a little more. And my final touch was I had a, a VHS recorder that recorded in stereo. Mm. So what I did was I took the final product off a of cassette and made a master copy on a VHS tape, just audio, stereo. So when the so when I told Mace to bring the guys over to hear what I did so I could meet them as well, I popped in the this VHS tape. Mm-hmm. And it had music. They're like, oh, first impression. <laughs> Yo, he's nice. He know what he's doing. He put on a VHS tape. Who does that? I didn't know you could even do that. And then when I met them, I was like, I know you guys. Mm. I've seen them in the school before. What's y'all age difference at the time? Well, we're all in <laughs> in age order. Like, I'm a year older than than um True Goy. True Goy's a year older than Poss. And I think Poss is either a year or two years older than Mace. Mm-hmm. So we're all sequential order. But for some reason, I appeared as though the extreme elder. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like when you're in high school, when you see somebody in the 12th grade and you're in the freshman, you go, whoa. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? After a while, it levels out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when you're young, it's like, <sighs> so Merce, which is Poss, call him Merce. I knew his older brother. His older brother went to the to the to the school. Mm-hmm. And his older brother was kind of tough. Or at least he looked tough and menacing. Nice guy, but they look exactly alike. <laughs> you, you, you can't. It, so you know, it automatically made him cool because his brother was cool. But I didn't know he emceed. And then Dave, I would see him and his brother uh, Mike walking to the school. Clearly, I didn't know he MCD either. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't look like MCs. Just as much as I probably didn't look like a DJ or producer, and I didn't know they did that at all. When I seen that, I was like, "Oh, I know you guys." Played it for them. They were like, "Yo, 
They liked it. And then I just drew out a plan for us to get this demo done. In that first meeting, you know, you, you know them, you see them. Is is there something about them that you feel like, okay, this is something for me. This is something good for me to put my energy into. Um, I think part of it, especially coming from Stetsasonic, I'm, keep in mind, in Stetsasonic, I'm the youngest. Mm-hmm. So, though I have a talent that's respected, I think some of it, too, you got to keep in mind that I'm a kid to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you know, and understandably, like back when I was, then I was a little more, like, you know, kind of hurt by it. Like, well, you don't listen to me. But I was a kid. These guys, listen to me. It was, it was, it was a... A breath of fresh air to like say, hey, you know what we're gonna do? Uh, we're gonna put like uh, we're gonna go watch Zubily Zoo, <laughs> and we're gonna get rhymes from that, and come back on Tuesday with sixteen bars about Zubily Zoo, and they come back with like, whoa, it worked, okay. they did it. Where before I'm like, hey, we're gonna do Zubily Zoo, they go, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> all right, young boy, why don't you go sit over there and, and eat a candy bar? So, <laughs> so, so that's to me. You know, maybe it's an ego thing, maybe it's an insecure thing was appealing to me, too. They listened to me Mm -hmm. and they respected me. So I was like, whoa, okay." And as I respected them as well, it wasn't just one sided where, you know, there was they were, you know, they were cool Mm -hmm. and they were super talented. And we thought the same way, which was nice. So Mace brings you originally to plug tuning. Right. Did the rhymes change much in, in, in what ended up being the final version, or was that pretty much... No, it was exactly the same. The rhymes were the same, and I've never heard anything like that. I mean, it's really crazy. His approach, especially given, you know, this is 87. Nobody was rhyming like this. Nah, not at all. Answering any the service, prerogative, praise positively, I'm acquitted. Enemies publicly shame my utility. After the battle, they admit since I'm witted. Simply Did they give you any insight to what made them come so different? No, but I did ask them to tell me what the rhymes were. Mm-hmm. Can you repeat it to me? What, what does that mean? Well, what does this mean? What does this mean? They just thought differently. And that's the place where I came from, which I think kind of made me an outcast, I think, parse, not an outcast, but made me view differently in my group amongst even my peers in general. Because, okay, here comes Paul. He's going to come with something stupid. <laughs> oh, it's different. Or people just kind of scratching their heads. And to put us two together, it was like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, I don't know, man. I, I don't know how you believe, if you believe in fate, if you believe in, you know, universe and think bring things together. But. It was definitely a godly thing mm-hmm. to put us two together because I don't think I would have worked well with anybody else at that moment. And I think vice versa for them. Mm-hmm. It, it just happened to like you put two sets of weirdos together to create something. It's interesting that y'all were in the same neighborhood. Y'all knew each other's families and y'all knew each other, you know, from school. How much do you think Long Island helped to create? this way of seeing things a little differently. I think Long Island for all MCs made them a little different because you always had the five boroughs, you know, which is Bronx, Brooklyn, uh, Manhattan, Queens, Staten Island, and especially looking at the Bronx, you know what I'm saying, which is the birthplace of hip hop. Uh, We always viewed that as like the gauge Mm -hmm. of, of everything. You know, you could throw Brooklyn and Queens and all, you know, all the above in there. But, um, and it's always almost mystical. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, man, that's crazy. That's dope. So being out in Long Island, which 
Long Island really comprises of all the five boroughs. Long Island is made of families that made it out of the city. See, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Who prospered. So we're all eventually, I mean, essentially, I should say, from the five boroughs. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm from Queens. I think um, Poss is, is from the Bronx. You know what I'm saying? So we're all from these areas. But I think it made us work even harder to, one, to get respected and kind of look at ourselves for inspiration because, you know, we're not, we can't go around the block and see Grandmaster Flash and the Cold Crush right away. We hear tapes, we could kind of, you know, visualize and like, oh, fantasize, like, oh, maybe that's the way it was made. And so we kind of make our own thing right. uh, of what we hear. And, you know, I think that, that makes us almost even work even harder because you, you make whatever the end goal is, is like that much more incredible. You're like, oh my God, he has these crazy superpowers. Mm-hmm. I, I got to work in the gym like 24 hours a day. <laughs> now, mind he probably just works like half hour a day, but you just put him way on that picture. Like, oh, I got to get ready for the fight. So I think the skill level for a lot of people outside of that, you know, the five boroughs just increased and mm-hmm. the imagination increased more because we just looked at it as like, yo, we have to be that much doper. Right. So y'all come together, decide you're going to work together, and then you start the process of making the first demos. Yes. And that is something I assume that you're kind of walking them through the process of. Yeah. You know, the the beautiful thing about being the quote-unquote accomplished person in this scenario is that it's like— it's almost I feel like I had a big cigar in my, in my mouth going, yeah, kids, this is what I'm going to do for you. First <laughs> Show of all, Paul. <laughs> first of all, I'm going to make a demo. And, so, so, and that's what it was. It was me sitting there from what little I knew or what I did learn from making the stat records. Like, we got to make a demo, but we're going to do one better. We're not just going to make some demo, regular demo. We're going to do 24 track. 24? Uh, what is, wait a minute. So you say 24 track. Yeah. Um, that's about the number of, you mean the number of tracks you used to make a song or like that the that there's 24 songs on the t- oh, demo tape? Oh, man, uh, uh, the tracks to make a song. Gotcha. So okay. we're going to go into a real studio. We're not going to go at home with a cassette or some little 8-track studio, which all this was expensive to make back then. You understand, right. it's like studio time is expensive. Not like now you just crack open a laptop or mm-hmm. a little 4-track and, and make stuff. So we had to get the money mm-hmm. first. Uh, they had jobs. I think when I met them, they worked at maybe at the Burger King, but then they worked at a place called the Busy Bee. It was like a flea market. Uh-huh. I think they were sweeping. And so I was like, look, we got to get $50. I think it was like, no, if you did the late shift, it was like $35 an hour. So we recorded from like midnight to like, <laughs> you know, we talk about that. Yeah, the lock in. Yeah. So we, you know, like four hours of pop. Had everybody pool their money in. Then we had to buy the tapes. Now, 24-track tapes back then um, was about a buck 20. So, and it's like 15 minutes mm-hmm. at, at 30 IPS. Uh, what so, is IPS? Oh, inches per second. That's okay. how fast the reels move. Gotcha. Uh, and that was the better quality. They had, they had 15, which moved half as fast. So, you could probably get like 30 minutes, but the quality was poor. Gotcha. So... Um, so we have to do, we're going to at least do two songs we can fit on here. So we got to do all this pre-production. We got to know what has to be done, da 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 because we only have a little bit of time to, to get all the, and, Yeah, yeah. So, and with tape, you don't even, you can't make a lot of mistakes. Yeah, I mean, you could, 
the thing is you can punch over and record, record, but after a while, if you're making a ton of mistakes, the tape starts to wear. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you got to kind of be on point. You can't do like hey, 80 takes later, right. you know, Pro Tools, just dump it and, you know. So that was one thing I, I definitely stressed in making the demo. Let's just get on point. Let's practice. Let's know what we got to do. And I would write out, as I did with the album in the future, uh, almost like homework. Mm-hmm. You need to have this, 16 bars, this has to be done, write it down and structure it. We went in, we knocked it out. And, to, you know, I must say, I think it came out really, really well. Now, you said there were two songs on this demo tape? Yes, it was uh, Plug Tuning, which uh-huh. they played for me, and another one called Freedom to Speak. Got you. And there was a little piece at the end, I think it's called Dance Stucky. I don't remember exactly the name of it, but we call it a bug out piece, which later on, are known as skits. Okay. So we call them bug out pieces. Whatever we had that was like that's what you. Parts. That's what y'all came up with as an early way to, to refer to them as bug out pieces. Yeah, yeah, this is a bug type. out piece. Like, you know, even when we did the skit for Three Feet High Rise, not to jump, but we call them bug out pieces. Awesome. So y'all have the demo with the two songs and the bug out pieces. Yeah. So then the next step is to try to get a deal with yeah the demo. yeah now mind you i don't have that much juice mm-hmm. i have juice in my neighborhood right <laughs> <laughs> you're but, the god of amityville I, I am but walking into the real music industry world i am nobody mm-hmm. so i knew that so i gave it to daddy O because everybody loved daddy daddy O from stetson from Sonic. he's like the guy oh he's the leader you know, and still to this day, he's the man. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And people know him. He can make moves. He he opens doors. Mm-hmm. Daddy, I got this demo uh, of this group called De La Soul. Can you please shop it for me when you shop your other work? Because he was, he had this uh, guy he was working with named Frankie J. That he was shopping his demo. So I was just like, just piggyback this. You know, when you played stuff, play this too. And I remember having him here, <laughs> De La, uh, the demo. He's like. Wow, they sound like ultra magnetic. That was the first thing. That's the first thing he said. When I hear that, I would think that's about the fact that they're not like rhyming the simple cadence. Like they're coming with different crazy cadences. Is right. that what he meant? Or I didn't ask. <laughs> I, I, I just want my demo shots. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Like I was like, yeah, cool, whatever. You know? And turns out uh, the story that I heard is that people were responding more to De La Soul than were to the oh, arts that he was shopping. I see. And so She's like, Paul, you really should take it to Monica. But Tommy Boy, they're like, no, oh, no, no. Monica Lynch, who was the uh was the the president at the time. Of Tommy Boy? Yeah. Okay. Um I was like, no, no, and she did A and R and everything. Uh Tom Silverman's the CEO. So I was like, no, no, no. He's like, I'm gonna take it. So he took it. They liked it. They wanted to set up a meeting. Well, to make it clear to the people listening, why did you not want it there? Because in Stetsasonic, we had issues with Tommy Boy at that given point, you know, of how they promoted the records, I guess, uh, monies, you know, every po- every bad thing that you could hear about a recording <laughs> artist in the 80s and probably even to date and definitely going backwards, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was our issues. And I was like, I didn't want them to go through that. And especially when other labels were offering us more money, like Profile was offering us more money. I think it was probably like ten thousand dollars to do to do the single, which was a lot of money, at mm-hmm. least for me. Um, and then Geffen was offering something like forty thousand. It was something amazingly Wait a minute, 40, amazing. Forty thousand for a single? I'm, I'm not sure it was a single deal, but I know okay. it, it, it was 
$40,000 to sign. Yeah, yeah. What? So given that y'all had better offers at places that you actually wanted to go, how did you end up at Tommy Boy? Because uh, the guys, we met with Monica Lynch and she was really into the music and they liked her and mm-hmm. they liked, I guess what she said at the meeting and they liked her vibe and it was like, we want to go with Tommy Boy. So they felt like Tommy Boy, I guess, got the group more, felt like they were going to be more invested in it. Yeah. I and I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was outnumbered. You know what I'm right. saying? Like, even though this is one time where I am the uh, the overseeing mentor where there's like, F you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and I think ultimately it might have been for the best in some ways. They might not say that today. Right. <laughs> but, you know. Uh, I I I really wanted to sign with Geffen. Mm-hmm. That's where I, I was like, it was more money. It was a new company. Yeah. They seemed like they they was they was going to put money into promoting and marketing the group. And you know, it like you say today, they might not say that because as we're all aware of, as as um, us on the fan side of Daylight Soul and watching what's playing out with Tommy Boy and all the different um, issues that have happened with trying to make the catalog digital and and trouble they seem to be having still to this day with Tommy Boy giving them their fair share as artists. So it's been a long history and it's a lot of it's public and it's bad. But like once y'all did sign with them, like what was that relationship like at first? It was great. You know, um, Tommy Boy was really into the group. They was allowing them to do essentially what they wanted to do as far as recording. Uh, we had a very limited budget. Mm. We made Three Feet High and Rising. In my head, I always said 25000 But somebody brought it to my attention. I think it was under 20000 We made Three Feet High and Rising. The whole album? The whole album. How, how many tracks? It's like... There's a billion. Yeah, it's like 18 or something. <laughs> yeah, right? like, there's, there's, and including the, the, the bug out pieces slash skits, there right. were yeah definitely a lot. And that's also paying ourselves. Wow. And studio time and whatever else it takes. But you understand, like, I come from not making money off of records anyway, so I never seen that as a viable source of income. Mm -hmm. It was just like, well, let's have fun. We're going to make a record, you know? And was that amount of money that they gave y'all as a budget, was that standard for them, or was that lower than what they usually do, or? What, for Tommy Boy in general? Yeah, Tommy Boy. Uh, I don't know, because I, I, like I said, I only know from, from my dealings with Sets of Sonic, and I think we definitely got less mm-hmm. to make the Stet records, at least the first one. The second one, I don't know what the budget was, to be honest. But the first Stet record, I know that my takeaway was $600. Wow. And I was I was so happy because I bought that VCR that I recorded. The- <laughs> there you go. You made it work for you. I did, <laughs> right? $600 and you made a whole another career path open up. Hey, you know, and that was just part of it because you got to stand that VCR I bought was at JCPenney's and it was the demo model on the shelf. It wasn't even new, you know, and I didn't get a remote with it either and I was upset because it's supposed to come with a wired remote and was they it never the top loading it. joint? Was it like the... Nah, nah, it was the front face, yeah, you know, it, nice. yeah, hey man, it's good you know, stuff. You know, top of the line. Hey, did I mention I had stereo? <laughs> <laughs> So going into this, you guys have three songs or two songs from the demo. Yeah. Um, do you at that point as the producer, do you have like a vision in your head of like, this is what I want this to sound like? Well, overall, no. 
But what I did get from the guys, which is good, is a lot of samples and ideas that they wanted to do. So they had, just like as we made the demos, they had fleshed out ideas of what is cool. I had ideas why I thought was cool. And then all we did was, you know, as they, uh, as in basketball, it's one game at a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I didn't have, I, I didn't have the foresight or, you know, to go, yeah, you know, we're going to make, I see a big picture of uh, the carnival. And we're going to, I was just like, we're just going to do one song at a time, one song at a time, one song at a time. Uh, and how they piece together is how they piece together, you know. But then after you have however many songs you have before you decide to go this, this other direction, you develop the bug out pieces, the skits, and kind of tie the album around with those yeah after we started recording um the as they try to say historically that this is the first album hip-hop album with skits on it that's when i put the skits literally when we were um sequencing the album Mm -hmm. because i was listening to it was like this is cool but i think the problem i had with um, rappers or MCs back then and, and records is sometimes you didn't know who was who or you didn't know their personality. Uh, the personality doesn't come across in the verses. Right. So I was like, yo, you know what I want to do? Because back then game shows, you had to introduce yourself and which, hey, I'm Bob and I love skiing. And right. da, da, da. I was like, oh, why don't we do that? So then everybody from the onset of listening to the album, they get an idea of who you are and what you like. Wow. And so that was more my main goal than developing a skit it was trying to figure out a way to implement that so when you did hear it you felt like you knew them and that made your approach to the album different hey all you kids out there welcome to three feet high and rising now here's what we do the following contestants how are you doing contestants all right so fellas tell us a little bit about yourselves hello my name is principal i just Glad to be on the show. Thank you. Okay. Did that also feed into the idea of the uh, description song? Oh, I am. Yeah. No, not okay. at all. Okay. I, I don't. I don't. Who knows? Because <laughs> <laughs> it seems like you guys are you guys are defining yourselves in that too. And I'm starting to hear like, oh, that's another way to like get the personalities across. Yeah, that that was very random. I. It's funny you mentioned that song. If I remember correctly, Q-Tip found that loop. Yeah. And he played it. And I just like randomly sloppily just put a beat underneath it uh, and they just start rhyming on it. And then Q-Tip wrote my rhyme for that. What? Yeah, that I am Prince Paul. He wrote. No, Will Will Rise Not Fall. Definition Prince Prince Paul. Paul. Yeah, he wrote that. Let's listen to a little bit of uh, description. Who was the loop? Do you remember? Or is that... I won't reveal anything anymore. That makes sense. <laughs> Will rise, not fall. Definition, Prince Paul. I'm mentor, don't be sore when I say that's all. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. That's awesome. Um, so there's Granny. Who's yeah, Granny? That that's uh that's uh Poss's cousin. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he used to he used to uh if I remember was he dancing at some point? Um yeah, he used to be at all the studio sessions. I forgot all about him, man. Wow, I hope he's doing good. Yeah. About China and Jet. Who, who's China and Jet? Uh, I, I think one of them might have been Dave's cousin, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. But yeah, they were the uh, the girls that um, 
put up the cue cards when during the the, uh, the performances and stuff. Oh, word. Yeah, it was back in those days. Woo! <laughs> Everybody's old now. <laughs> so, you know, Paz talks about, um, I love peace, um, or at least think that we need some. So that kind of gets into the imagery a little bit. Right. Peace signs, hearts, like pastels. Whose idea or, or who came with the motivation to go that direction with the visuals and the imagery? Man, I wish I, I knew the answer to that, to that. But they came with that slightly uh, when they met me. Like, mm -hmm. they were already wearing, well, a little bit later, like, the baggy clothes. And, and this was before the baggy clothes was popular. Right. Um, keep in mind, Dave was dreading his hair before... Dreads was popular, right. at least in, re in regular, you know, Afro-American culture. Jamaicans was definitely dreading the hair. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That was different. Thing. Yeah. So he was, you know, they were on their own vibe. Because I, I, I remember, I don't know, uh, you know, the writer Harry Allen. Mm -hmm. uh, one time I was taking Daylight to um, uh, Latin Quarters for New Year's Eve. And Harry Allen was on the train. And all I remember was the look on his face. I was like, yo, Harry, this is a new group I'm producing. They call De La Soul. And he was like, and it just, <laughs> just the look on it, you could tell. He wasn't like looking at him crazy, but it's like, whoa, they look different. Because they're wearing the baggy clothes. They, right. they, they, you know, designed stuff on the shirts. And it was way, like I said, way different than, like I said, what you, what you see. So they were on their own thing. Like, I, I can't really say who started it. Um but they must have collectively sat together and came up with that. Because it's like a 60s vibe, right? Well, it became more of a 60s vibe. Now, this is where the marketing of Tommy Boy comes in. Because I guess they look at De La and they correlate all of that. Okay, they're talking about daisies. But daisy would meant the, the inner sound, y'all. Mm -hmm. And not literally a just daisy. a daisy. Yeah. And then they look in the way they, they dress and then they're like, okay... 60s. All right. The, the the music has a 60s kind of vibe right. to it. So that's the marketing push of Tommy Boy and the the day glow colors and all that, which really didn't jive well with the uh, with the group at the time. Yeah, talk. <laughs> let's talk about that. I think partly because you know, mind you, we're in hip hop. And right. There's a certain amount of uh, you know bravado and masculinity that kind of comes along in that era. You mm -hmm. know, in hip hop. And you come across like, hey, with Daisy's peace and they happy. <laughs> and that brought along a lot of people testing them. Well, how would people test them? Uh, I remember this, <laughs> this would happen. I remember I was at Penn Station and Dale I was on tour. I forgot who they were on tour. And I think Slick Rick was on the tour, a few other people. And they were, yo, man, I heard your boys beat up somebody in whatever state they were in. Because I guess people would roll on them thinking they're soft. Mm -hmm. Those guys are pretty big. You right. know what I'm saying? And they'd have to beat people up or knock them out or do whatever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. So, but there was constant stories of that. Ooh, my voice cracked. There was constant stories of that getting back to me. Yo, I heard your boys just beat up. <laughs> Yo, they sh shot up this car. Yo, it was, it, was, <laughs> it was always something. And I'm not exaggerating when I heard that. There was always something going on. And I think a lot of it wouldn't have had happened if people didn't take whatever they saw as their imagery <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's like you know you don't mess with them you know who is dante ross and why did y'all roast him so much oh dante the scrub <laughs> Don 
Dante Ross is, is 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 cool nowadays. You know, back then uh, we might not have said <laughs> you know <laughs> as such, but he he's, he's he's all right. He's a good guy. Uh, he was hired or kind of uh, placed as our A and R for the project. Through so he was working with Tommy Boy. He was he was just just started working with Tommy Boy. I think he was uh, might have been working before with maybe with Rush, uh, which is Russell Simmons' um, company. Um, if if I remember correctly, but he just started working at Tommy Boy, and we were very reluctant because we was like, we don't need it. We, we need an A and R for. We need nobody coming in telling us what to do or making suggestions. We are our A and R. You know what I'm saying? Like, we've got this far with it. We don't need him. So I think automatically we were just resistant right. to him being there. You know, you know, we're, we're a group. We're chilling, and then you know. You have, you know, we're doing hip hop stuff, and then a white guy comes in as your A and R. You're like, "What's he going to teach us?" Like, right. we, you know, we live this. But Dante knows his stuff, but we didn't really need that from him then. You know what I'm saying? What, what he, but of, he did know his stuff. What kind of suggestions was he making at the time? He wasn't really making too much of anything. You know, <laughs> I mean, he would he would like show if I re, if I can remember maybe some records here and there, but we were just so resistant you know what i'm saying because you know it's like oh, why is he here then he that and then he you know he becomes the enemy then he becomes the scrub you know, <laughs> you know? so <laughs> you know? so him as the a and r and he's you know in all these sessions how does he react when he hears all of the slander <laughs> in the music you know he was i'm not gonna say he was cool with it but he he dealt with it pretty well you know what i'm saying like he didn't you know, wild out anything. As he got older, he got more wild. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? But at that given moment, he was just like, oh, okay, cool, you know, whatever. You know, but uh, yeah, Dante the scrub. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's a. Uh, it's funny, like, he can't live that down because every once in a while he'll get called that and I'll see his face and he's like, yeah, whatever. 30 years of being called a scrub. It'll, it'll wear on you after a while, man. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll wear on you after a while. Well, what had happened was. So y'all are making music and bug out pieces and skits, you know, like y'all y'all are doing things that nobody else is doing at the time. Even like the approach to the beats and the rhymes, oh, the yeah. stuff that nobody else is doing at the time. Like, how is the label reacting as this music's coming in? The label was like, whoa, this is cool, you know, but we don't have a single. Mm. They're like, we don't have a way to sell this record. So we got all these songs in. Now, mind you, we, it's, there's no skits because we're just talking about just handing in songs. Right. You know, and, and, and you know, before we sequence, we give the label songs. This is, this is the album. And this is, like I said, pre-skit. Um, this is the album. They're like, we need a radio song. Like, oh, so what a radio song. Like, what's a radio? Especially for hip-hop. Mm-hmm. Hip-hop's not really on the radio like that. You know what I'm saying? Right. You not know? at that point. Yeah, you know, not getting daytime rotation. Very, you know, a slot might roll in for Run DMC, Rockbox, or whatever's <laughs> right. out. You Walk know? this way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd be something like that, right. right? But, you know, it's not something that you strive for. Um, so what's that? So we're sitting there. What's the radio? I guess it has to be something popular. We're using really abstract loops, with the exception of Say No Go. People kind of know what that is. So me and Maceo sits there, both Parliament Funkadelic fans. The idea of Knee Deep comes in. Um, we both agreed on it. I'm not sure if he made the suggestion. I made the suggestion. Um, but we both said, okay, let's work on this. Mm-hmm. I think Maceo, um, with the guys, they get together. They find the parts that they want. We go in the studio, we loop it up, 
I add in the beat and the say it now and all the little random stuff you, you know you throw it, throw in there. Um, and they were really reluctant into writing that song because it was the label kind of pushed the idea. You know, the label's like, we need a radio record. Like, now remember, you know, this is keep it real. Uh, hip hop times, even though we didn't do keep it real as a phrase. Yeah, yeah, but... it, it was like you know, which meant be true to yourself and do you, and you know, you know, anti this, anti that. And now we're forced to do this radio record, this quote unquote radio record, and this is our version of it. This is super commercial, mm-hmm. you know, in, in our eyes or well, in their eyes. And of course, we're talking about me, myself, and I. Yes, is it safe to say that's the biggest song that De La Soul's ever made? I would say outside of them going out doing the Gorillaz record that they did, I would probably have to say this probably is. Yeah. Well, let's listen to a little bit of uh, Me, Myself, and I. Amazing choice. I think it came out pretty good. I think it came out awesome. Uh, <laughs> you know, the label happy. They was like, oh, we got a record to sell. <laughs> last spring, I did a show with them. Oh, dope. South by Southwest. And, um, you know, I always watch this set whenever, you know, it's one of my favorite groups all the time. So whenever, I, you know, I'm somewhere where they're at, I get to, I love watching them play. And when they do that song uh, for the chorus, we hate this song. <laughs> hey, hey, now you got the story why they hate the song. <laughs> but so they've been hating it for 30 years. They've been hating this song. Um, from from my viewpoint, they have been, you know, because they, like I said, they were reluctant in recording it. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, we got to give this. You know, one, we, you know, going back, like I said, we got A&R we don't want. Mm-hmm. You know, they're hitting this, they're starting to develop some type of imagery that the group's like, eh. Now you want us to sell out with a radio record. Mm. You know, it's like it's compounding. But the irony is that record that the group, you know, really went against uh, is the biggest record that introduced everybody to the album. Right. And it was wise on Tommy Boyd's part to ask us for that because it, you know, what other record would have had that impact where people would have even been curious of what the album would have sounded like. Right. So it, it worked out, and that's why I go to say, yeah, though I wanted to go to to um, Geffen, that might not have happened. Right. We might have not made me, myself, and I. Wow. So, you know, I think of it like that, you know, business-wise, maybe not Tommy Boy, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but and when you think of the course of events, things happen as they're supposed to, mm-hmm. and it unfolded as it's supposed to. So, yeah, I make the record for $25,000. I think under that. Under yeah. 20, 20 to 25 or yeah. whatever in the range. And do you get a sense of what Tommy Boy is expecting for it to oh, sell? I don't think they're expecting for it to do much of anything. Okay. You know, um, which led to a whole bunch of different problems, which, which we sit and openly debate uh, of the sample problems. Yes. Because, you know, they're looking at this record. Now, mind you, the... the the history of Tommy Boy, they haven't sold that many records anyway. Probably Planet Rock was the biggest record sold to date. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, went gold. And that was in the early 80s. Now, mind you, we are at 89 right now, you know. So they're probably thinking, eh, 
I'm guessing 25,000, 50,000. Units sold? Yeah, maybe 100,000 records at at the most. They only pressed up 100,000 records. Well, I wouldn't say that. They, 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 I don't think they even pressed that much. Right. You know, but they weren't expecting the explosion, which meant that, you know, if we only got paid $20,000, they're not going to clear all the samples either. Now, they'll debate this. But me and the guys will always say, because they gave us these sample clearance forms, tell us all the samples you use, the artists, that we still have them to this day. Well, co- you know, copies everything. Mm-hmm. We handed it in. They chose the records that they thought that was popular. They thought just the ones that they felt like they had to clear because those artists would hear these Oh, yeah, possibly the, 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 the obvious know. songs. Right. You know, we already put out some other stuff that was a little questionable and nobody said anything. But, you know, it was little amount of records that mm-hmm. were pressed out and it was you know it was underground hip-hop stations now we have this huge record that automatically just shoots up the charts we got number one this number one that in the country in the world and now all ears are on this album that has all this eclectic sampled stuff and it's been being written as oh this is amazing because you know they pull from everywhere the sounds oh so the writers and the reviews are telling on y'all, basically. Well, they're making people listen more intently. Right. Now, now what what got us, the story that I was told, is one of the guys from the Turtles, his daughter, was listening to the album in the house. Mm-hmm. This is, like, the story I heard. And this is how it all, the big lawsuit started. He's, and, you know, uh, one of the guys from Turtles is in the house. And all of a sudden, he hears this song. Sounds very familiar. What's that you're listening to? Oh, it's De La Soul. No, it's my record. Mm. And that's the first lawsuit with the Turtles. And that's how that starts. Before we dig into that, how many records did this album sell? Um, It said it went gold somewhere in the 2000s. So, and that's gold with 500,000? Yeah, but they said in the 2000s. I cannot believe that it took all that time for that record to go gold. That doesn't make much sense. That record was huge. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like... It was huge. So for me to get a gold plaque in 2000 and I forgot what it was, to me it was just bizarre. Mm -hmm. That record should have went platinum plus, at least platinum. I mean, so the single didn't even go? The singles went gold. Okay. You know, uh, me, myself, and I went gold. um, I think over here in Europe. Um, Did the single go gold here? I don't remember. Such a huge song. You would think that it did. Yeah, I, I think I think it I think it might have went gold, but th- they always claimed that the album had never went gold in in the in the eighties. And when, in time when it was super hot, right? They said it trickled gold in the two thousands. It's weird. Yeah, and then you know now, mind you, we're nominated for a Grammy. You know, I think I think um, Young MC won that year. <laughs> I think if they reverse time, they might want to change that outcome oh, well, to the know, Grammy. <laughs> they, 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 probably, they probably have to do that every year. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You know, so y'all blow projections just out of the water, right? And along the way, the lawsuits start, and yeah, um, y'all approach to making records, you weren't thinking about lawsuits you weren't thinking about copyright because at that time nobody did right no i mean there, there was nothing to you know predate that like right. I, I mean you know this was fairly a new art form a new style of of um recording and making music 
So, you know, aside from, uh, you know, Sugar Hill Gang replaying Sheik's Good Times, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what was there? You know, so this kind of started everything rolling as far as like the sampling, as far as I can remember, you know, um, and, you know, what's fair use, what's not fair use. And to this day, I don't know if it's really sorted out, you know, completely. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it started the whole thing, you know, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 <laughs> it from, went on for years. From my eyes, you know, you guys' lawsuit with the Turtles is really huge. You know, Biz Marquis' lawsuit with Gilbert O'Sullivan. Was bigger. Was That was bigger? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, you know, I guess I, I'm I'm looking at it historically, and they both seem really big. Um, which case was first? Ours. So you're literally like the first hip hop artist to be sued. I I don't know if we're the first, but probably the the first big lawsuit. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? There might have been some small things that you you know maybe people cleared like kind of on the low. Right. You know, but this was publicized. The way that some artists approach this, right, right. is that they'll hear that they got sampled and they'll approach y'all like, okay, we want to cut or we're going to sue the Turtles in this lawsuit. Was there ever a moment where they were like, just cut us into the publishing or something? Or they were just like, no, we're just, we're just going to sue for damages because we don't like it. Or what was their approach? Well, see, now this is where being young and being ignorant has a lot to do with the outcome as well because we didn't know. We don't know what happened. We just know that the label takes care of it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Would the lawsuit come out to? I don't know. Maybe it was a million dollars. I don't remember exactly what it was. It's, we've never, keep in mind, I've I've never had a a really big record before. Talking about jazz was, was big, but never of this magnitude. I never made money before. So to me, it was like, a million dollars from what? For me, I don't have, I don't have any money. I just, probably got a thousand dollars to make this album to begin. <laughs> so to me it was like I'm a lawsuit whatever you know right. what I'm saying I didn't know of the bottom line because like I said I've never seen a royalty right. now when I get a royalty from Three Feet High and Rising and I think of all the money that got taken out because of oh, lawsuits you think about how much you could have made yeah now I'm like that's what that's what happens I see oh so everything is hindsight so as it's happening we're like man that's bad but we don't have any money anyway so it's like you know, like I said, it's not until I got royalty check and I started really thinking about it. I'm like, whoa, okay, that's where it affects me. So you didn't necessarily feel personally affected at the time. And like we said, y'all's approach was just like whatever y'all heard that y'all liked that y'all thought would be cool to flip, especially because y'all are pulling from all different kinds of music and, and really going out of y'all way to make sure you don't retread stuff that people are already doing. Like it's not a bunch of James Brown records, even though yeah. there's something there. Like right. it's not all of that. So going forward from this incident, does it start to change the way you think about making music? Not at all, because I think, well, it does. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does in a way. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that we we don't sample. I mean, we still sample, right? Um what we sample, we're more cognizant of, and we definitely make sure that the label understands what we're sampling, right. and we give it to them and like, look, <laughs> and, and they're and they're even more like, look, you know what I'm saying? This going into the second album, um, but yeah, but it doesn't stop us from 
of how we make our music. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? It's 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 where we got our success. It's 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 part of our sound. And um, you know, that's that's just what we do. That's just who we are at that time. If you look at the genre as a whole, and you know, as somebody who's been involved with hip hop for as long as you have, what do you think the effect has been in in, in terms of having people, you know, the threat of being sued? And how do you think that's affected hip hop as you know, in, in terms of the sound? Um, it yeah, definitely made people learn more. I mean, as far as like technology, it pushes what you can do with technology to change stuff, skew it, interpolate, um, learn how to play keyboards yourself, <laughs> learn to bring musicians in to flip stuff to make it sound a certain way. Um, I mean, even recently, uh, I got involved with something called Tracklib, uh, which is online. And you can clear your samples uh, with the masters and the sample and know exactly how much you're paying. With, and it has a huge library that's constantly growing. So that's one way to combat where people are starting to go back to sampling based on Tracklib, which is nice. So how does this work again? Oh, it's beautiful. Go to Tracklib.com. There's a library of tons of music. And it's like I said, it's constantly growing. You, you go, you pick what part of sample you want. And based the of the amount of the sample and some of the sample, it gives you a price and the price that it gives you. And it's, it's very, it's very inexpensive. I mean, f compared to like clearing with a big clearing company, you clear the master and the sample, uh, the publishing all in one shot. And you could do it via um, just like how you would check out anything online. So how's the price set? Uh, it's, it's, it's set uh, amount, the, the usage. I see. You know, use, you know, fourteen seconds, fifteen seconds. Use the whole thing. Use it. And this is this is just musicians who have agreed to these terms, or yeah, it's um okay. it, the the publishing companies, and gotcha. we have all, not all, but most of the major publishing companies down. So and, and it's it's a wealth of stuff. If you get a chance, look look online, right. and it's, it'll change the way people are sampling or choose the sample, go to Tracklib, it just makes it way easier. And that's part of the reason why I got involved, because I've been down this, you know what I'm saying? This is like, this is like the perfect advertisement. They ought to be, they ought to throw us a few dollars just, just for this last two minutes worth the podcast audio. That's dope, though. No, um, no, get, like I said, get a chance and check it out. You, you know, you, you it, like at least now when you make a record, you go, Okay, it'll cost me two thousand dollars to clear these ten, fifteen samples, yeah. as opposed to you know guessing, you know, and having somebody you know put a chokehold on you. <laughs> <laughs> when I look at hip hop and and I look at, at at all the different ways that it sounded over time, I get really, I can get really emotional about this time in right. hip hop history because. What's messed up for me to think about is how like, oh, now after these incidents and after, you know, legally, this is the way that we've decided it's going to go. You can never make that record now. Like it wouldn't be legal for you to make Three Feet High and Rising. Um, it would be expensive for me to make Three Feet High and Rising. It can be made. But every Usually most people have a price. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So... I can't say it won't be, but it would just, you know, and, and would hence part of the problems today of releasing this record, you know. Uh, but, yeah, that's, yeah, it'd be difficult to make. Speaking of sampling, it just popped into my head that you, uh, for I Know, y'all sample Steely Dan. Yeah. 
Donald Fagan says wild, terrible shit about hip hop all the time. I want like, do you does that does that would that would that ever be a concern of yours? Is like sampling somebody who you feel like doesn't really like respect the craft of of hip hop. Well, I, I have to preface saying that that was uh, Pasta's idea to to loop that song, and, and and to me, after I flip your record, I think you might change your mind. Mm. <laughs> you know, listen, Adam. Hey, man. Sometimes you got to take it there, man. <laughs> it's yeah. Just Rockwell speaking. <laughs> hey, man. You know, what I'm saying I'm nice. You might wear your suit like this, but you don't look like this in it. <laughs> so looking back on all of it, right? You as a 20 year old stepping outside of Stetsasonic to create something that you have more authorship in. It's more along the lines of like you seeing things differently. How did it feel like once this album was complete? Like how did it feel to see something that was your own vision just just come together like that? Well, I have to say it was a collected vision, but For sure. I, it, it would it would uh it made me feel valid. Mm. You know, it, it any questions I had about myself uh, it just made me a little more confident, um, not cocky, but just like I'm not that crazy as I thought I was. Right. You know, uh, I think as artists and all of us, we go through some insecure moments. You know, you listen, like, uh, you kind of question, especially if you got people going saying you're whack. Then you really start to question yourself. <laughs> uh, and this was a validating moment for me to go. I'm not whack. <laughs> and, and you know what I'm saying? I'm not whack. I, I'm, a, I'm all right, man. You know? In the course of your listening to Rap Music Sense, then, has, has there ever been an album that you've heard and you're like, oh, man, the spirit of this reminds me of the spirit that we brought into Three Feet High Rising? The first Far Side record. Mm, bizarre Rise of the Far Side. When I first heard that, I was like, <gasps> I mean, it's not necessarily the amount of sampling we did, mm -hmm. but just the vibe of it. You know what I'm saying? I was like, man, I heard that album. I was like, man, I wish I made this record mm -hmm. at the time. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yo, I made this record. I wish I made this. It's, it's dope. You did know? you ever get a chance to talk to any of them about that? Yeah, I think I, I think I might have mentioned that, you know, that Tom's like, oh, my God. You know, I fanned out. It's like, oh, my God, I love your record. Oh. <laughs> you know, I have no problem with giving it up, you know, and uh, it, uh, yeah. It, it, that's one record that I, I uh, when I first heard, I, I thought of Dela. You know, there's groups that are influenced, like you could hear, and even by native tongue in general, like um, Arrested Development. Mm -hmm. We know we can go on and on and on, um, but that's sounding. You know, when you know, when you said spirit, I think of Far Side, right? Just bugging out, having fun, yeah. just doing whatever. Ah, yeah. you know. And anything goes. Anything goes. Yeah. You know, we the music has a vibe. It feels good. Either you like it or you don't, you know. We got one more thing we're going to do uh, to, to wrap this conversation up. I'd asked you, uh, was there one piece on here that you wanted to kind of do a little bit of a deep dive of and talk us through? So what you told me you wanted to talk about was... Daylight orgy, <laughs> which uh, oh, I'm looking for it on YouTube right now, and it's giving me all kind of orgy, <laughs> orgy stuff that I wasn't looking for. Hey man, now, now you got that in your history. <laughs> <laughs> That's real. 
<laughs> that is real. Okay. All right. See, I'm afraid to play this one because it say De La Orgy, but then it's a it's a lady with a tennis racket. I don't know why. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand this at all. So let's hope that this is what it, what it say it is. Got some extra stuff in the background. That's what I'm about to say. I thought I thought something else was happening. I'm like, that ain't the song. <laughs> oh That's man, funny. that is bad. But funny. you know, but this is this is part of, you know, part of the discussion we just had, right? About how you know I can't just pull this song up on Spotify, right? Because of all of the issues with Tommy Boy and some of that's related to the sampling. And it's just really unfortunate, you know, that it's not as readily available as, as almost anything else that we're going to talk about on these these podcasts. So. I just think I feel it's my record. No, I know. I just hope that it, it all uh, sorts out at some point. There's no reputable De La Orgy on, <laughs> on YouTube here. So you, you're just going to have to paint a picture for us. Uh, well... We're doing this album, and part of it is uh, me finally having some type of say-so and uh, respect mm -hmm. in recording. So I'm kind of pushing the limits, man. I, I you know, I loop up this beat, and here comes uh, genius Prince Paul sitting behind the board having his, uh, his uh, you know, light bulb moment going... I think this music feels like an orgy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you're, and you're 20 at the time. Yeah, yeah. I'm tw I, now I'm 21. 21. Ah, I think this music feels like an orgy. Now, I haven't experienced one at 21. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sad to say I have not experienced one at 52. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. It's sad, Paul. <laughs> uh, but I would have to say this. I was like, hey. And I'm looking at everybody in, in the studio. It's the group. I think uh, Q-Tip was there. I don't know who the female is. I don't remember who it is. Uh, but everybody's like, I need all of you to go in the booth and moan. <laughs> I like to call this one De La Orgy. <laughs> now, do what, do what you must. <laughs> do what you will, please. Now, did you have them all go in there separately? Did they go nah, in man. It was all around. Pause. One mic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was, it was all around one mic, and it was one take, and I was surprised how much they got into it. <laughs> it was a real... Uh, man, look, put your face in the pillow, I think they said. I mean, I'm like, what? <laughs> I was just expecting some moaning. Right, and they start telling on itself. Uh, yeah, man. Then it, it started getting to some fetishes, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I, I was like, whoa. Well, how wonderful is it that it was a safe space? It, it, you, know, you know? Yeah, it, 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 it was a safe space, and it was... Uh, and it was art as its finest. <laughs> and they all went with it. Um, they, they all went with it. And, and it made the record. And it and it, it's, it's very interesting. And it's fun. Nobody got hurt in the process or pregnant <laughs> in the process. So, I don't know. It, to me, it, it was a defining moment in the sense of, like, wow, they, they trust me. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? That, mean, that meant a lot. You know, it, it's like... It's such a bizarre idea, bizarre concept, and it, like I said, it went beyond just okay. Let's let's have a laugh, and, you know, make a song. It was the fact that these guys really don't mind having their career in my hands, right? And that 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 you know went volumes uh, for me at the time. 
Well, uh, I mean, it seemed to capture an awesome moment in time. You had, you know, the the native tongue movement kind of was built around these sessions, or at least that seemed to lay the later foundation of it with a lot of people coming in out of the studio. And we talked about, you know, native tongue specific on another episode, but it just seems to be historically like a really important album for a lot of reasons. Uh, do you look at it that way? Yeah, I mean, I look at it. It's important in in the sense of, um, you're right. As far as native tongue, the camaraderie built. I told you, Q-Tip wrote my rhyme. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's a fun fact. A lot of people don't know that. Right. You know that it's a small rhyme, but the fact that we was able to sit around together, and even for him to listen to me. <laughs> As you know, Q-Tip is very his own person nowadays. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there was a point where you know he, he uh, listened to somebody. At least that day. <laughs> At least that day. And wrote a rhyme for me, you know, which I which I can appreciate. But it was just beautiful and seeing just everybody together working. Mm-hmm. You know, where I think nowadays, and I'm not saying native tongue specifically, but just in general, it's like it's hard to get people in a room without going talk to my manager. Right. How much am I getting paid? What's my publishing cut? I can't do this because my label said this. Mm-hmm. It was just like, we all love making music. We all respect each other's craft and what we can do. And it wasn't, you know, it's going to be on your album? <laughs> you know <what> I'm <laughs> and, and it was it was nice. Like I so said, you look back and like, it should always be that way, mm-hmm. you know? But uh, I'd have to say I'm glad at least I got a chance to experience it because I now I don't think it, it's as organic as that. Not I think even on a on a small level as being in, in your home with your friends and go, hey, my dad said he read somewhere where if I write something I get published. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what could you do? Well, you know, what y'all did was make uh, an incredible record that seems like it stands the test of time and it's gaining new fans all the time and sparked a whole bunch of movements and made space for a whole lot of people to feel like they could really engage with hip-hop that wasn't necessarily the same typecast image as everybody else. Any lasting words about Three Feet High and Rising? I guess more or less that I'm glad it spoke to people that, uh, like you said, who probably weren't really too much into hip-hop, who Mm -hmm. wasn't familiar, who was maybe, you know listen to the music that we were using. Uh, I like the fact that it really brought a lot of people together who wouldn't necessarily come together. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you went to a De La show, you have the B-boy, and then you have the person who liked Duran Duran, and you have, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it, 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 it was nice to see that unification at that time. You know, where now you, you might see that more so, but we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s, where hip-hop was still somewhat segregated, you know, um... But it, it's it, that I was. It was a good feeling, and it's it's a good feeling that it, to make something out of um, out of sheer love. And mm. it, 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 we really had no idea it would be this big. We didn't try to market to anybody, um, and that, that says a lot. It says a lot. And in some ways, you, you can never have a first time over again, where it's all love and no projections and no expectations, and you're just getting in there and doing it. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's good, and. and like I said, come from a place of not having su- success. This was just done innocently. You know, mm-hmm. like I didn't have a formula for success. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't go in there like, okay, guys, see, now first thing we got to do is make a, a reggae track with the, uh, you know, you know. So I didn't know anything. I just knew or I didn't know. I felt what was good, mm. you know. And 
that was good enough. And you know what else is good enough? Was this goddamn discussion. <laughs> 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 That's our show for this week. I am Open Mike Eagle. This is Prince Paul. This has been another episode of What Had Happened Was. To hear more about the Native Tongues movement specifically, check our episode on that, uh, which either will be before or after this, depending <laughs> on when we decide to put things out. And, you know, make sure you do, you, you when you when you hear this, you let people know about it if they're into the kind of stuff we're talking about, into hip-hop history, urban music history, and, you know, do that whole rate and subscribe and hit all the like buttons and, and, and do all the things and um, help the show grow. Let people know. Um, once again, I'm with Mike Eagle. That was uh, Prince Paul. And this yes, has sir. been what had happened was. Mm-hmm.